Thank you. You may be seated. Before we begin a confession, after studying the scripture this week, I realized that I am guilty. I had a child in the late 90s, and it was a fad at the time. May still be. I don't want to find out. It was a fad at the time to decorate the nursery with images of Noah's Ark. And so we had in our nursery a wallpaper border with Noah's Ark. We had a nightlight of Noah's Ark. We had Ark bookends around her other sweet stories. We even had a Noah's Ark puzzle. Well, after studying Genesis this week, I think I need to find her a good therapist. I'm not sure that this is a good story for children. After studying Genesis this week, I realized that God looks over the earth and sees the wickedness of humanity. The scripture says that God looks at humanity and sees that his every inclination is only evil all the time. And so God decides to wipe humanity from the face of the earth with a flood. Now there is Noah, one person who is blameless in God's sight. And so God instructs Noah to build an ark. And on that ark, take two of every animal... And Noah and his family and these animals will float above the destruction. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a joy ride to me. That sounds like a pretty painful cruise. Hear the scripture passage. The story of the flood from chapters 8 and 9 in Genesis. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky, and the waters receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down, and on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the mountains became visible. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Noah's Ark, it is a big story in the Bible. I would argue that it's epic. Of all the pre-Abraham stories in Genesis, the flood story takes up the most space. Four chapters, 
of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And the flood story is not unique to the Israelites. Other cultures have a flood story. Other cultures in that particular time and area of the world have flood stories. Two cultures in Mesopotamia that I want to mention. One is the Sumerian culture has a flood story. And in the Sumerian flood story, the gods are irritated because the human beings are too loud at night and keeping them awake. So the gods decide to send a flood to destroy, to wipe out humanity. In the Babylonian account, the gods are afraid of human beings because the humans are becoming too self-sufficient. So the gods devise a plan to wipe out humanity. But one of the gods on the divine council betrays the council, goes to earth, tells a human being about the plan. That human, that hero in the story, decides to build a boat And on that boat, he takes not animals, but artisans, so that civilization can be spared. Now, the Genesis story is very different from those stories. The Genesis story has some unique characteristics. One of the unique characteristics of the Genesis story is that civilization needs to be destroyed. Civilization uh, has become wicked. Another characterization in a the Genesis story of the flood is that our so-called hero, Noah, is rather flat. Noah doesn't even have any lines to speak. He doesn't have any words to say. And from what I can devise, the only reason that Noah is named is because his name means something. The name Noah means comfort or rest. And so the hope, I think, in this story is that Noah will bring comfort or rest from the curse of the fall. And then there's the character of God in this story. God is one in this story. It is not a divine counsel, but it is one God, and God is in control. In fact, Walter Brueggemann, who is an Old Testament scholar, says that the focus of this story is not the flood, it's not the destruction, it's not Noah or the animals or the ark, But instead, the focus of the story is, in fact, God. And a change that is wrought in God that makes a new beginning possible. And that change, I would argue, brings a new identity, a new hope, a new possibility for humanity as well. Brueggemann and other scholars are in agreement with him, say that the most important verse in this story is chapter 8, verse 1. The first verse that we read this morning, God remembered Noah. That God remembers Noah, that God remembers humanity, is an important, significant event. I took my oldest child to, uh, to be dropped off for a bus on Friday for camp. She went on the weekend of Warriors Retreat with the Stillwater Camp, and so I took her to the Bass Pro Shop on Friday evening to catch the bus. Her bus returns this afternoon, and I can guarantee you I will remember to get her back. She's significant. She's important to me. I will remember to let her back into the house this afternoon. She's an important part of our house. Now, I also have to tell you that on Friday, our veterinarian's office called to remind me that from the new puppy, they needed a stool sample. Would I please drop that off? I forgot that. 
And I can guarantee you that I'm going to forget that tomorrow as well. That's not important to me. Someone else in my household will have to take care of that. But God remembers Noah. Noah is significant to God. Humanity is important to God. And so God remembers Noah is what the scripture says. And God sends uh, wind to dry out the earth. Now, the Hebrew word used for wind in this passage is the word ruach. And that's the same word that's used for breath in Hebrew. It's the same word that is used in the creation story when God breathes life into humanity. So God remembers Noah and sends this life-giving breath across the earth to dry out the earth. And new creation is possible. There's chaos. There's devastation. And in the midst of that chaos and devastation, God sends this life-giving breath. And new creation is possible. So I think the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is what do we have? What do we have to put before God? Because really, it doesn't matter what we have. It doesn't matter how much chaos there is in our life, how much devastation, or how much there's not in our life, what our life is void of. The guarantee, the hope, is that God can work with that. Whatever you have, God can work with that. Well, I think the most curious verse in this passage is verse 21 of chapter 8. In this particular scene of the flood story, Noah and Noah's family have come off the ark. Noah um, makes an offering to God uh, that is pleasing to God. And then God's response is, never again will I curse the ground because of humankind, even though their every inclination is evil from childhood. Now, I don't want to focus on the depravity of humankind this morning. Instead, what I want to focus on is the fact that nothing has changed in this story. Nothing has changed. Even after all this, Noah and his family build the ark. They board the ark. The floods come. They survive the floods. God provides for them, and nothing's changed. Still, every inclination of their heart is evil all the time. The rabbis taught if, uh, if, the, if the baker says that the bread is bad, that's some bad bread. If the gardener says that the plant is bad, that's a bad plant. If the creator says the human heart is evil, I don't know what to say about that. And yet, many scholars argue that because there's no shift in humanity, In this story, there becomes a shift in God. Now, I don't know, that may be a little unsettling for you to think that God might change, that God might shift. And if that's the fact, then then I would say uh, to you, after this story, we have a clearer image of who God is, a clearer understanding of who God is, and that's the purpose of this story in the Bible. What happens is that God decides to no longer give humanity what they deserve. But instead, God decides to deal with humanity with compassion. No longer will we get what we deserve. 
but instead uh, we will get grace. And God's first act of compassion is covenant. Now this word covenant you'll find throughout the Bible, but in this story, this is the first time in the Bible that we find the word covenant. If you uh, took Disciple One class that was offered at this church uh, for many years, you know that in that class, that's a one-year Bible study that covers most of the high points of the Bible, and that the theme of that class was covenant people. And I had a, a professor in college who argued that covenant was the most important idea uh, for a biblical scholar, that we are people of the covenant. This is an important important concept. And if covenant is important, and this is the first time that covenant is introduced, what is it that we find out? What is it that we realize about covenant from this story? Well, the first thing I think that we realize about covenant from this story is that it's, it's a gracious act. It's a loving act. It's an act of compassion. And the second thing that I think we learn about covenant from this story is that God does most of the work. God does most of the work. God is the heavy lifter. Now, at our house, we like to uh, move around furniture from time to time, or maybe I should say I like to move around furniture from time to time, but I need help. And so my strategy in moving furniture is is three parts. I, uh, I do not want the heavy end. I do not want to be walking backwards. I want to be walking forwards. And then thirdly, I want the person who's walking backwards and carrying the heavy part to tell me the plan. How long are we going to carry this piece of furniture? Where are we going to set it down? Which way are we going to go through whatever door? And that's the image that I have of covenant here. God's the heavy lifter. God devises the plan. Really, God carries it all. God carries it all here. And God says, I will remember my covenant for humanity. I will remember my covenant when I see the rainbow in the cloud. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant, a reminder of God not to destroy humanity, not to give humanity what they deserve. We know about signs of covenants from a wedding. In a wedding, the sign of the covenant is a wedding ring. And so in, in this particular covenant, the sign for God is the rainbow. And rabbis taught that the rainbow would be like a string tied around God's finger, a reminder of the promise that God made to humanity, not to destroy humanity, not to give them what they deserve, but instead to act towards humanity with grace, with compassion. Now, there are several um, trivial pursuits in this story, but one that I, I find rather interesting is the significance of the numbers in this story. I'm told by my friends who are studying Hebrew right now that in the Hebrew language, every number has a non-numerical meaning, a non-numerical definition. And so it's interesting to me as we look at chapters 8 and 9 in Genesis that when the waters recede, the life-giving breath comes, the waters recede, Noah, his wife, Three sons and three wives get off the ark. Eight. And then in chapter 9, God begins his monologue talking about the covenant and mentions the word covenant eight times again. What I'm told is that the number eight 
can symbolize hope or grace. So eight people come off the ark and grace remains. Eight times the covenant is proclaimed. And what we need to know about the covenant is that grace prevails. There's a lot in this story. This is a big story. It's an epic story. But it occurs to me that no matter where our attention falls in the flood story, we can't escape God's grace. Maybe this is a wonderful image for a child's nursery after all.